It's so exciting, all the life change that's happening. I love to see those baptisms and so proud of you that are getting baptized right after this service today. Well, how are we doing, Community of Faith? Yeah, I can hear you at home. Hope you're doing well. I want to talk to you today about a, a huge misconception that we have in America today, that feelings are how we determine reality. And it causes a lot of heartache. We have this understanding that what we feel is true, and to be true to ourselves and true to our heart, we must go with the feeling. I mean, the heart wants what it wants, baby, right? That's, that's how it goes. But this wrong belief causes huge heartache among our population. It leads us astray and causes great pain in relationships, in work, at school, in our sexuality, and keeping our bodies fit and healthy in all of those ways, basically in every area of life. But did you know that we as believers can get sucked into that in so many areas? But even in our faith, that can happen. If I asked you this morning, how do you know if you have faith? We'd get a lot of different answers, but really for most of us, if we're really honest, it kind of boils down to, well, I feel it. I feel faith. That's how I know that I have it. I feel it. And for believers, this false belief that we feel faith is what causes us to think we're demonstrating faith when maybe, in fact, we aren't showing any faith at all or to wrongly believe that we don't have any faith when we're facing some difficult circumstance. We just don't have any faith at all. So I want to talk today about this huge misconception, even among believers, that faith is something you feel. We're in a series called Christianity 101. We're going through the gospel of John, getting the basics. We've talked about uh, what it really means, what that whole phrase born again when Jesus was talking about it, and it wasn't what most of America thinks it is. And if you haven't seen that, you can go back and grab those on YouTube or wherever uh, just for free. But I want you to catch up with us. And we're going to talk about faith today. I'm using a really familiar passage. It's the only miracle that's found in all four of the gospel accounts, those eyewitness accounts of Jesus. Um, you might have heard it before, but I don't want you to tune out on me because we're going to look at it from a whole different perspective and see a truth that's hidden in there that probably you might have just kind of passed over. So let's jump into it together. It's found in John chapter six. Let me just read it for you. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. That is the Sea of Tiberias. It's the only time we see it called the Sea of Tiberias. Uh, Herod Antipas, the king, had created a whole new city on the west bank of that Sea of Galilee. He called it Tiberias after Tiberius Caesar. So it was also called the Sea of Tiberias. Verse two, and a great crowd of people followed Jesus because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? 
Now, Jesus asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, oh, Jesus, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have even a bite. I want you to look at how emotional Philip is here. He saw clearly all of the discouraging circumstances. First off, it started out in chapter six. It said, after this, after what? It was after Jesus had sent the disciples two by two to all the cities in all of Israel. They were pretty exhausted. And it was after they had heard that John the baptizer had been brutally murdered by the same Herod, the king. And it, you know, there are a lot of implications that were not good for Jesus and his disciples that this one that had come before Jesus had been murdered like that. In all four of the gospel accounts, if, if we put them all together, since it's in all of them, these eyewitness accounts, we can see four really discouraging things. It says in, in different ones, it says the place where they were was barren. There was not anything around. It was out in the middle of nowhere. The time was late. The people were many and their needs were great. Now we're going to find out there really were many people. It says 5,000 men we're going to see, but that didn't count the women and children. So 15, 20,000, I don't know how many, how many are there. This is a huge crowd of people. Philip clearly felt the impossibility of the situation. He felt his inadequacy. The problem with only looking at the circumstances and how he feels is that Philip answered in precisely the same way that an atheist would answer that question. You see, an atheist would survey the crowd because he doesn't believe in God and would never consider the possibility of some supernatural kind of intervention happening, supernatural resources. The disciples at this point are acting like practical atheists. If they can't figure out a way to feed these men, they assume it can't be done. Hmm. Implications for us. Think about that impossibility that's in front of you, that issue, that difficulty, that problem. How are you facing it? How are you treating it? Are you treating it as a practical atheist, trying to figure it all out, trying to work it out, trying to manipulate it. See, Philip saw the situation clearly. He just didn't see God so clearly. And he was convinced of what could not be done. And they were good calculations, except he forgot to factor in that Jesus is actually right there. In Matthew's eyewitness account, the, the disciples actually said, send them away, send them away. I mean, they came out here, they're not prepared. It's getting late. Um, we don't know what we're gonna do with them. You know, they're gonna, it's gonna be a mess because these are not like the upper crust of Israel. These are probably some of the poorer people. They, they, they don't have food. And, you know, the disciples go, they didn't even come prepared. At least teach them, you know, God, you know, I mean, bring trail mix with you next time or something, right? I mean, this is just ridiculous that you came out here empty-handed. And it was a really practical suggestion. I mean, the people needed food to eat. They needed a place to sleep. There's 5,000 
men besides the women and children, and they're out in this barren countryside. And Philip said, you know, Jesus, even if we could find a Chick-fil-A, it costs half a year's salary. And, you know, it's probably the Sabbath, so he's going, and Chick-fil-A ain't open today, you know? So it we just, it's not gonna happen. I, I, I mean, so what's interesting, Matthew's account goes on when asked to send the people away, Jesus actually looked right back at the disciples and he said something, it borders on shocking to me. Jesus replied, and it says, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Now I want you to put your place, yourself in the place of the disciples, you know? I mean, they're just regular guys like us. So there's 20,000 people out there. They have no food. And um, they said, you know, Jesus, you just need to send them away. I mean, we're tired. We don't have any compassion left. We're drained, you know? We're just emotionally exhausted. Just send them away. Get them out of here. It's just a big mess. You, Mark Shook, give them something to eat. I'd be like, huh? What am I supposed to do? I mean, you know, what am I supposed to do? How, how is that going to happen? Then in Mark's account, Jesus asks a really penetrating question. How many loaves do you have? Now, it's interesting because I think at this point, he wasn't asking for information. But to press home a really important part, you say point. You say you don't have anything. But is that really true? Are you sure about that? Take a look around and see what resources you have. What do you have to work with? The question reminds me of what God asked Moses in front of the burning bush. He had told Moses, I want you to go and free my people. This is so many thousands of years before, but you can almost call back to it when you see this. And he said, you go to Pharaoh and you tell him to let my people go. And, and Moses is going, uh, 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 you, you know, God, God I don't t t talk so good. I mean, why are they going to believe me? How would they know that I came from you? And God speaks from the bush, and he said, what's that in your hand? And Moses is looking at it. It's his stick. It's his shepherd's staff, his walking stick. And he said, it's a shepherd's rod. And God says, well, throw it down. And he throws it down on the ground. And the Bible says it becomes a slithering snake. Probably, you know, because one of the big snake gods that the Egyptians has with a cobra, it's probably a cobra. So imagine you throw it down and all of a sudden it becomes this cobra, pops up, right? It says Moses ran. I think that was a wise thing to do probably, right? I mean, if you throw your stick down, it becomes this, this cobra and it's like popped up. I mean, he ran. He was like 20 feet away from the snake. And then God says, pick it up by the tail. And Moses is like, God, I spent 40 years on the backside of the desert and I've seen a lot of snakes and that's not how you pick up a snake, you know? But the Bible says that Moses did it. He picked it up and it turned back into that rod. And that simple stick, that simple shepherd's staff that Moses had was all he had. But that became known as the rod of God. It was with that rod that he held up his hands and the Red Sea parted. It was with that rod that he struck the rock when the people were dying of thirst and water started gushing out of the rocks. The rod of God. And it, 
It was just something simple. It was just there. It was something that he had, but he didn't realize that God could use something as simple as a stick. What's in your hand? God, I don't, I don't, I don't have, I don't, what's in your hand? Let's look what, what Jesus did with this. Verse eight, another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Again, you can see the defeated emotion in Andrew's voice. So they find a little boy, and somehow he had come prepared. His mom had packed him a little lunch. He had like a couple of sardines or something and, and five little rolls. And, and, and so here he is. That's, that's what we got. But let me stop and remind you of something this morning. They're looking at it, and they're going like, what a I mean, we've got a huge problem. Every miracle that's ever taken place has taken place on the platform of a problem. I want you to, I mean, I dare you to, to, to think of a miracle that didn't take place without a problem. It was always a problem first. Problems are those situations in our lives that bring us face to face with our deficiency so that we can view God's sufficiency as the only alternative. That's what problems are. What if you learned to love your problems? Every problem is an opportunity to trust our God and to watch him step into our circumstances. Learn to love them. Oh, cool, I got another problem. You ever done that? Some of you are going like, I'm sitting by a problem right now and I don't even know what to do. You know, listen, you have a problem, get excited. Every problem gives you a front row seat to see the glory of God. The truth is this, in our life, we will all be faced with a series of great opportunities brilliantly disguised as impossible problems. Did you get that? That's life. That's what it looks like. And what's interesting, Jesus didn't expect that little boy to have enough to feed the 5,000 men and plus women and children, that whole great multitude. He only expected the boy to place what he did have in his hands and let him do the rest. Now, this next part we could easily miss, but this is the main point of my message so I want you to pay really special attention right now. I tend to just like sweep over this. Verse 10. So Jesus said to the disciples, he's got the little boy up there. He says to the disciples, have the people sit down. Other of the, the gospels, the, the, the eyewitness accounts, they tell us that he said, sit them down in groups. So there's 20,000 of them, but he sits them down maybe in familial groups or, or some kind of way, some kind of groups, okay? And he commands the disciples to do this. And I want you to notice something. They never questioned him. They never questioned him. Now put yourself in their place for a minute. There's 20,000 people. It's getting late. They're, they're hungry. You hear them whining and complaining a bit. Jesus says, sit them down in groups. He's got some food up there. They can see that he's got some food and I'm going to be thinking, they're expecting us to feed them. 
if we sit them down, we're raising their expectations. If we raise their expectations and there's no food, we're going to have a riot on our hands. That's not going to be pretty. It's going to, in fact, I'm, you know, like Moses, I think I'm about ready to run. But what did they do? They did what Jesus said anyway. They set them down. They obeyed. And don't miss this, okay? Their feeling of faith, their feeling of faith may have failed. But see this, their obedience did not. Their feeling failed. They didn't feel it. But their obedience did not. And that's a very fortunate thing because if you've lost your faith feelings and failed to obey, you've had it. Because the only way God works the miracle is for you to obey that next small, right, obedient step. In fact, I would define faith as the next small, right, obedient step. Now, most of America doesn't know that. Faith is something you work up. Faith is something you try to gin, gin up, you know, so that you can feel this. And that God's got, no, it's the next small, right, obedient step. So their faith feeling had failed, but their obedience, their faith action had not. And it's not feeling, but action that is always the channel through which the miracle comes. Remember back to verse six, Jesus asked this only to test him for he already knew what he was going to do. So it was already in the mind of Jesus. It was in the sovereign plan of God that something great was going to happen. But he was wanting the disciples to learn to trust and obey him. That miracle wouldn't have happened if they hadn't obeyed him. It's not feelings, but obedience that is the faith that becomes the channel of blessing. Let me go on. It says, there was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. That's where we got that. And I love the way Leith Anderson summarizes what happens next. And then he just simply says, Jesus did what Jesus does. Verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. One of the, one of the eyewitness accounts says in the Greek of the New Testament, they, were, they ate until they were chortazo, which means, chortazo means stuffed. Like, oh man, I need to take a nap. That's how much they ate. But the other gospels give us a little more understanding of the picture. Basically, it says Jesus took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples and the disciples distributed to them that were sitting down and likewise of the fishes as much as they wanted. I want you to think about this once again, when this first starts. So I'm the first disciple up there and Jesus has, you know, five loaves and two pieces of fish and he breaks a loaf off and hands me a fish and he goes, okay, start passing this out to the crowd. And you're going like, that's going to last about two people. And then that riot that I was worried about is coming. But once again, they just did it. They did. He gave it to them. They walked out there, gave it to someone. He came back. He gave them some more. And they're just, the 12 of them lined up and they're just keep going out and going out and going out and going out and going out. 
the disciples in faith had to obey and pass this out, believing it was not going to run out, or at least looking at Jesus, whether they believed anything at all. And I want you to notice the miracle. Where did it take place? It took place in the Lord's hands. That's where they always take place. As he held this this simple meal, he would break off pieces and give it to the disciples, but he just kept doing that. That must have been really strange looking, you know? That must have been amazing. Here, here's half a loaf, and and he just gets down to the 12th disciple. The first one comes back, and, you know, he's still doing it, and it's like, what is going on? He kept on doing that. There wasn't an instant feast. It wasn't like he said, oh, five loaves and two fishes, and there's a banquet table, you know, that's just full of all this amazing loaves and fishes for 20,000 people. It was a continual supply that came from his hand. And in order for the need to be met, they had to keep coming back to Jesus and coming back to Jesus and taking from the hand of Jesus. The implication for us is huge. If the needs in our lives and in our communities are ever going to be met, it will only happen as we continue day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment to receive from the hand of Jesus. Because you see, we're not adequate. You're right. You see your problem well. You're insufficient. You can try to manipulate it. You can try to work it. You can, but we've got to get to Jesus. We've got to see. We've got to give him whatever we have, our resources. It's yours, God. And then watch what he wants to do. Basically, what do we do? We just simply take the next right, obedient step. And I think the disciples learned an important lesson that day. Faith is not a feeling. No, it's not a feeling. Faith is taking the next small obedient step, no matter how you feel. One of the weirdest stories in the Bible, God has actually taken a lot of criticism for this story being in the Bible. Way back in the Old Testament, it's when God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. And people are, what kind of God is that? That's what is going on here. But I want you to see from the book of Hebrews a different twist on this because this is what I think God was trying to teach us and to teach Abraham in that story. The book of Hebrews in chapter 11 of the New Testament, it, it has this whole roll call of the faithful and it tells us about this, but it gives us more insight in what happened. Let me just read it to you. It says this, by faith, Abraham at the time of testing, God already had in his mind what he was gonna do. So just the same as Philip, it's a test. Offered Isaac back to God. Acting in faith, he was ready was as ready to return the promised son, his only son, as he had been to receive him. And this, after he had already been told, your descendant shall come from Isaac. Okay, so listen. Abraham, you remember the story, maybe. He's really old, past childbearing, his wife's past childbearing. But God has said, I am going to give you a son, and the whole world is going to be blessed. And the descendants of your son 
are going to be as the sands of the seashore. And this is the Jewish people, and Jesus is the blessing that came through that. But he said it's through, he's real clear, through Isaac. When Isaac was born, God said to Abraham, through Isaac, all this will happen. And then he says, as Isaac's like 11 or 12, I want you to sacrifice your son to me. Look at what the next verses say in Hebrews. Abraham believed that if Isaac died, God would bring him back to life again. And that is just about what happened. For as far as Abraham was concerned, Isaac was doomed to death, but he came back again alive. Here's the deal. He had a promise from God for his kid. Through Isaac, all this will happen. And then he said, I want you to sacrifice Isaac and Abraham. Do you think Abraham felt a lot of faith as he went up the side of that mountain? I'm sure he was distraught. I I bet you he was saying, what kind of God is this? But he also believed in his God so much. He had said through Isaac, through Isaac, even if Isaac dies, he'll raise him from the dead. That's how much I believe that he is God and can do what he said. He said through Isaac. He didn't say through another Isaac, through somebody else, through something miraculous has got to happen. And he believed it. You ever had a wayward kid? It's a way. But God's given you a promise. God's worked something in your heart and you go like, uh, you know, Let me tell you something. Through Isaac, the whole world will be blessed. God, I don't understand who you are. I don't understand why this is happening. I don't understand. It seems like you're a million miles away, but I know what you told me. I know what you showed me. That's why Abraham's called the father of faith. Jesus uses tired, emotionally drained people who don't feel faith. They were grieving the loss of John the baptizer, exhausted from traveling city to city. Their emotional condition is seen in their lack of compassion. Send them away. We can't deal with this mess. People are so messy. Uh, Get them out of here. Jesus, in another one of the gospels, he said, no, they're like sheep without a shepherd. And I love each and every one of them. But Jesus uses people that don't even feel compassion. Jesus uses people who feel they lack the necessary resources. So let me ask you a question as we close out. Are you tired? Are you emotionally drained this morning? Congratulations, you're in the perfect spot. You're right where God is ready to do something Miraculous, you qualify to be used of God in meeting the overwhelming needs of people. See, he doesn't work through sufficient people. He doesn't have any. He works through insufficient people who give their inadequate resources to him and let him use them as he pleases. The need is great. We're not sufficient. Verse 12 is just interesting. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces 
that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. 12 disciples, 12 full baskets of food. What is he showing them? He's not just sufficient. He's abundantly sufficient beyond anything you could believe. Dr. David Livingston, the famous missionary explorer to Africa, had a medical medical condition which required that he um, drink goat's milk because, well, what would be the case, his stomach was so messed up sometimes, and it was just from all the different bacteria and stuff probably, you know, being in a foreign place because he was from England, that if he would drink goat's milk for like supper, it would settle and he would be okay for the next day. Well, one day he was in his prayer time and he just said, God, everything I have is yours, everything. I give it all again just to you. And he met with a tribal chieftain that afternoon and he noticed that the chieftain was eyeing his goat that he had that gave the milk. And, and he just felt like God put on his heart, give him the goat. And so he said, I want to give you this goat. And so the chieftain took it and was very happy. And he, he, he said, well, I want to give you this. And he handed him his stick, his walking stick. And so evening came and his stomach was messed up. And David Livingston said to one of his tribal friends, he said, I wish I hadn't given my goat away for this stupid stick. <laughs> you know, I, I just, I don't know what I'm going to do now. And his tribal friend said, oh, Dr. Livingston, you don't understand. That's not a stick. That's a scepter. You now own all the goats in all the kingdom. Stunned him for a minute. What's that in your hand? You know, it's like God's given each of us. He says, I want you to rule and reign with me on this prodigal planet. I want you to learn to be an overcomer because I'm teaching. This is boot camp. I want to teach you how to do it forever. We're going to rule and reign with him forever. And he's got to teach us how to do it right now. What's that in your hand? I don't don't have much. You have a scepter. You have God's scepter. You're a queen. You're a king on this planet. God wants to step in. How's he going to do it? You take the next small, right, obedient step. The last verse of this little passage says, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is coming into the world. This is the Messiah. But look what Jesus did. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Jesus got the wrong response from the miracle. He knew he would. How many of us follow him for his blessings? See, they wanted him for his blessings, not for him. I want to make you king because you can feed me. I want to make you king because you can prosper me. I want to make you king. Me, me, me. He said, no, that's not how I become your king. And what's interesting, this is the beginning of the end. We're going to follow this through next week, and you're going to see that 20,000 people were there. And by the end of this chapter, 12 were left, his 12. And he goes on to be crucified and to die. These same ones that said, he's the prophet, said, crucify him. Let me just give you in conclusion, Jesus often 
told people to do simple but impossible things. To a lame man, he said, rise, pick up your bed and walk. To a man with a withered hand, he said, stretch forth your hand. To a dead man, he said, Lazarus, come forth. Simple but impossible. We always lack what we need to obey God's commands, but God is faithful to enable us to take the next small obedient step. When we take the next right small obedient step, we discover that the impossible isn't. J. Hudson Taylor was a mighty man of faith. He was a missionary to China. He opened the doorway to China and all that God's done in China throughout all these years. But they were talking, some people were talking to him and, and, and they said, what did you do in the face of all those hopeless circumstances, in the face of that murderous hostility? And reflecting on his experiences, he remarked, there are three stages, just three in God's work. Impossible, difficult, done. I just want to tell you that for what's in front of you right now. Impossible, difficult, done. What's that next small right step? What's that next small right step? Start with what you have. Take the next small step of obedience. That's faith. Get a front row seat to our great God in action.